Psalm 22. You're probably going to want to keep them out and make sure you put a marker like a finger, a ribbon, bookmark, something there after we get done reading our text this morning because we're really going to be flipping around quite a bit today. Just a heads up. All right, I'm starting to hear the dying of pages flipping, so let's go ahead and get into our passage, starting with the title. It says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. If you, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will worship, uh, praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Before kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. 
Amen. Thus reads the reading of um, this, thus ends the reading of the holy, inspired, and infallible word of the Lord. For some of us here, we read this verse, uh, the first verse of this chapter, and it hits home. It may be experiencing the loss of a loved one. It may be a physical illness ailing you, losing your job, hardship with your finances, struggles with your marriage, temptations that simply just won't seem to go away no matter how hard or frequently you pray, anxiety and depression, abuse, struggles with assurance of faith, or just simply pressures of life, just making it feel as if you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders and you have lost all hope. Not only do you feel as if the Lord has deserted you, but the psalmist writes, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? You feel like he's not listening to you. You feel as if he's not going to save you from this pain and suffering that you're going through. The cry of anguish at the beginning of this chapter cuts to the depths of your soul. And you feel the pain of David as he penned here. You sympathize and maybe even were just wondering and maybe even cried out, and prayer as to why God has abandoned and deserted you just recently. This psalm speaks to you. It shows the Bible understands our suffering, that the Lord understands our suffering. I'll be the first to raise my hand here. I'm just going to come right out and tell you, I've struggled with depression almost my whole life. And I fell into a cycle of depression over the last month or so, but I'm very thankful for the many of you in the body who have counseled me through it and fellowshiped with me through it and lifted me up in prayer. But I feel these words, and I know that all of us have our own struggles and pains that we face on a daily basis. We all suffer in some capacity. The writer here says that he sees everyone around him is mocking him, so much so that he feels lesser than them. He calls himself a worm. It stings to be mocked. That's why when you trip and fall, even if you're all by yourself in the middle of the woods, you get up and you start looking over your shoulder to make sure no one saw it. You know, Your face turns red in embarrassment. Or when your favorite sports team loses. It's a ridiculous thing, really, but you feel embarrassment showing your face around your friends who are fans of other teams when yours loses. Obviously, here in San Antonio, you all feel this pain fairly often these days with the Spurs. <laughs> but this mockery is much more severe than just being made fun of for your sports team. This is a public humiliation. It's a sarcastic mockery of the man's faith and the God that rules over everything and shapes his entire worldview. Not just his religious beliefs, but it leaks into his philosophical, ethical, and metaphysical understandings of life. In verse 17, it, uh, it says, I can count all of my bones. Given the context of public humiliation, his hands and feet being pierced, his bones being out of joint, being in the lion's mouth, we can see that this is describing public execution. There's nothing in the biblical accounts that fully describe David experiencing something like this. He's describing something that is beyond himself. He's a prophet. We see this fact not only in many of the prophecies from the Psalms he wrote that point to and are fulfilled by Christ, but if you turn to me in, in 2 Samuel 23, and we look at verses 1 through 2, I'll give you a second to get there. 
2 Samuel 23. Verses 1 through 2 explicitly states it this way. Now these are the words are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The word oracle here is a word that is in reference to divine utterances of our Lord Jehovah. And he says that the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. We many times look at David as a mighty king, but often neglect him to see him as the mighty prophet of the Lord that he was. He was given this psalm as an oracle of something that was external to himself, something that was outside of the bounds of his own life experiences. For many of us, this, the first words of the psalm sound oddly familiar, and that's for good reason. If they don't, that's perfectly fine, because I'll show you here in a second. Let's continue reading in the scriptures in the New Testament now. Turn with me to Matthew 27. We'll begin in verse 11 and read all the way to verse 50. This is going to be a bit of a lengthy passage, so bear with me, but I promise that this will all make sense. Matthew 27. Verse 11, it says... Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release the, for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had... Then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Excuse me, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, when he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a, uh, today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said, again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus Christ, who, uh, Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands from the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they put on him, and took the, uh, they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to, be, uh, to crucify him. As they went out, 
they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to, place a call, to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they, delivered, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. Now, if he, de if he desires him. For he said to him, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now in the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now you see why we actually really could refer to Psalm 22 as the gospel according to David. It's Christ and Him crucified. This psalm is the only passage that we have in the Scriptures that tells the account of the crucifixion from the first-person perspective of the one being crucified. Where we get to see an exclusive sneak peek insider view of the mind of the one that bore our sins inside His body and the torment that it brought Him. Now with all the Jews gathered around Him cheering on His death, He knew that the Jews would understand what he was saying from the cross. He knew that they would understand the reference. Imagine you're one of them. And you just sang this psalm the other day in the temple. And then you see him cry out these words, and it hits you. That he is the one that you have been singing about. This psalm is describing in detail a form of execution that would not even exist for a millennia. With the Roman crucifixion, in our passage it says that the evildoers encompassed him and pierced his hands and feet. We see many more correlations between this passage and the gospel accounts of Christ's crucifixion in the New Testament. The language of many animals surrounding him, bulls, lions, dogs, oxen, all showing imagery of a pack of predators gathering around, preparing to slaughter their prey. The crowds all gathered around our Lord, yelling out, Crucify! Jesus in Matthew 27, 22. Verses 7 and 8 of our passage shows the men in Matthew 27, 43, where the men almost word for word said, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Verse 15 says that His tongue sticks to His jaw, showing that His mouth is so dry and in need of a drink. Our Lord in John 19, 28 cried out that He was thirsty. And they raised up for him a sponge that had sour wine in it. 
in verse 17, it correlates Matthew 27, 35, where it shows that they cast lots for his clothes and divided up his garments, garments between them. However, take a look at verse 21 of our passage, and it's, you see where the psalmist writes, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You see a stark contrast between the lines here, where he goes from crying out, Save me, to you have saved me. The psalmist transitions from crying out in pain, suffering, and agony, and then turns to a joyous tone of praise. How do we get from line one to line two of verse 21? It feels as if there's something missing here. You almost feel the urge to ask, but how? It feels as if there's some, I mean, how did we get from such a low point to such a high point, from a darkness to light? It went from zero to 100 and real quick. In the opposite direction. The answer is Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ transforms our suffering. Now, when you read Psalm 22 in light of Matthew 27, you come to understand that there really are two different ways in which our minds process this question. The question at the beginning of verse 1. We may cry out these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me in a bold and defiant tone? Pointing our fingers at God as if the suffering that we are currently facing is unjust. If we're honest with ourselves, I think that most times when we hit points of trials where we begin to ask this question, this is us. This is our tone. But this is not so for Christ. Although he deserved no punishment because he had not sinned, his tone in saying this was one of humble submission to the Father's will. It shows us that how we are to suffer and bring our complaints before the Lord. Be vulnerable. Do not hide the deep pains that are in your heart. He understands the depth of your pain more intimately than you do. But at the same time, humble yourself and understand who you are as the creature before your creator. As Hebrews 4.16 says, let us draw near in humble confidence before the throne of grace. We are given access to do so. In Job chapter 1, we see Job, this righteous man of God, has just lost everything. Some of his livestock has been stolen and many of his servants slain by Sabian thieves. The rest of his livestock and servants burned up by a fire from heaven. His children were all killed by a wind that collapsed the four corners of the home they were all in. All that he had left so far was really his wife, which in the next chapter she would tell him to curse God and die. However, we see at the very end of chapter 1 in verse 20, it says that he arose tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and what? He worshipped. When we do not feel a desire to worship is when we need to worship most. Despite what the world may think, this is not a sign of hypocrisy. It's a sign of maturity. Same thing with when we don't feel like praying. Notice here how even though the psalmist is crying out, wondering why God is not speaking to him and has abandoned him, that he's still speaking to God and calling him his God. Never stop. Even though it may feel like you're not experiencing any growth or your walk has grown cold, he hears you. He will hold true to his covenant that he has made with you. 
as our passage says in verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Now, as you're flipping through pages, just as a bit of background, this is after the Lord has used Joseph to save the sons of Israel from the famine that had covered the whole earth and brought them into Egypt. As the generations went by, the people of Egypt enslaved the tribes of Israel. And at this point, the people of Israel had been in captivity for 400 years. Listen to this in Exodus chapter 2. We'll read verses 23 to 25. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. and The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The Lord heard the groaning and the prayers of the people who had been held in captive for 400 years. Although it may have felt to them as if he had abandoned them. We see in verse 4 and 5 of our text that it shows God's faithfulness to their fathers. He delivered them from captivity. He held true to His covenant, led them out of Egypt, led them to the land of Canaan to establish them as a nation that would bring forth the king, the one whom, as this psalm shows, would suffer true abandonment to bring forth a new and greater covenant built on better promises for those who are in Him as it speaks about in Hebrews 8.6. Look at verse 22 of our passage, where it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. This verse is quoted in Hebrews 2.12 and is attributed to Christ there. In eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made a covenant in which the Son, the Creator, would maintain the fullness of his, while maintaining the fullness of His deity, become that which He created. He would take on human essence, the entirety of what it means to be human, a human body and a human soul and will. This is what theologians in history have referred to as the hypostatic union. But not only would He take on the fullness of a human essence, He would fulfill the law and do what God cannot do, suffer. He calls us brothers because we're redeemed by His suffering. Christ took, it, uh, Christ took it on so that the entirety of our human essence, not in part, not just the body, nor the soul and will, but the whole, our entire person, is declared righteous. He was despised and forsaken by men. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. And now those that followed him as he performed signs and wonders just months before were demanding that he be crucified. And now as he hung from the cross, he experienced the pain of being forsaken by the Father, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone in his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
This is the great exchange. He made him who knew no sin to become our sin, the very manifestation of our sin. He who is God himself regarded as an idolater and a blasphemer. He who is the very image of the invisible God himself regarded as one who fashions idols. He who is the very essence of truth regarded as a liar. He who is the author and sustainer of all life regarded as a murderer. The very one who passed through the heavens and condescended to our lowly estate and lived his entire earthly pilgrimage in passion to regard others and save your soul was regarded as a coveter. This, this is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He felt the horrific sting of sin, the swift sword of justice, the wrath of the Father. As we recited earlier, the Apostles' Creed states, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. And please, when we think about this, really dive into truly understanding the depths of what this means. The sinners who are cast into the lake of fire on the last day will not be able to sympathize with what it is that he endured on the cross. No, that is trivializing this work. He did something that only he as God could do, which is bear the weight of the eternal wrath in a matter of hours. Sinners in hell will go a thousand years in their suffering and be as close to the end as they were when they first started. It will never end as a consequence of their own personal sins. So think about that. He took the wrath that was due for many, you, 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 me, and did not stay there. No, he bore the weight of eternal torment that was due for us and carried it to its completion. He drank the fullness of the cup of God's wrath to its very last drop. He was, his suffering was unique. No mere man can handle this undertaking. Only the God-man. We cannot even begin to comprehend the depths of his agony. Christ's suffering was not an accident, so take heart that yours is not an accident. So let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He suffered and became forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. Take heart, brothers and sisters. It comforted Christ while he was suffering, knowing that in and through him all believers would have an everlasting comfort and consolation. That through his suffering we can fulfill our chief end. What is our chief end or chief purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Verses nine and verse, verse 9 and verse 10, David, the penman of this psalm, is relying on God's past faithfulness to assure himself of the present reality that the Lord will remain faithful. In verses 27 and 28, we see another transition here. He switches it up from focusing on praise to focusing on missions. And we see a depiction of the eschaton. All the kindreds of the nation shall, pray, shall worship before thee. All false, false idol worship will cease. And those that we saw earlier 
that once mocked Jehovah will now bow the knee and worship him. Like the Apostle Paul who persecuted believers but was brought to submission when faced with the presence of the Son on the road to Damascus. It shows that they will remember, like the prodigal son in the parable of our Lord, when it says that he finally remembered or came to himself, remembered his father, humbled himself, and ran to him in repentance of what he had done. It is no longer Jews that are the lone covenanted people of our Lord, but it is both Jew and Gentile. He, was broke, he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and declaring all nations are his. He is the Lord of all. Verse 30, and at the beginning of verse 31, we see that it says that the posterity and generations will proclaim his righteousness. As one generation passes, another rises in its stead, and what that prior generation leaves behind will shape the coming generation. So no more of this generational fighting where baby boomers are blaming all the problems on the, of the world on millennial stuff, okay? But in all seriousness, the gospel has been sustained and spread throughout the world for the past 2,000 years because of the faithful proclamation from one generation to the next. And there will always continue to be a remnant like that until our Lord returns. Until all of those that were given Him from eternity throughout all ages until the end of time be called and brought into the kingdom to glorify His name. Amen. This is missions. The Lord has chosen the means by which He will expand His kingdom. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And the gospel is the rock by which He has built the church and has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's not just the foundation, but the brick and mortar with which the kingdom is built. He has not set forth programs or little schemes to try to manipulate people into the kingdom. All we need is the gospel and its simplicity and purity. Preaching on the sinfulness of sin and our need for Christ, the Son stood bold, facing sarcastic taunts and mockery and bore the wrath of the Almighty God so that you will not have to. How dare we take it so lightly as to not be willing to face the same affliction from those around us and proclaim the gospel to our coworkers, family, and friends. We must be mission-minded. The Great Commission is not a suggestion, but a command. And the Lord will not forsake us in doing this work for His kingdom. One last thing. Take a look at verse 31. The last four words. It says, He has done it. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like Christ crying out, it is finished from the cross in John 19, 38, doesn't it? It's meant to sound like that. Because the work of Christ is finished to Telestai. It's completed. He begins the psalm suffering, crying out to the Lord with complaint of agony but he ends it in victory and triumph. He is the righteous man of Psalm 1, the hyssop branch of Psalm 51, the king of glory 
that ascends the hill in Psalm 24. He is the one who died and was forsaken by the Father in Psalm 22 so that you would not have to be. This, this is Christ and Him crucified. He has done it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die on our behalf. Pray that we would spend the rest of this Lord's Day, especially as we come before you to partake of the elements of this Lord's Supper, meditating on Christ and Him crucified. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We pray this in the name of the resurrected Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit, our great Comforter. Amen.